I would direct your attention to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19 in our preparation for the Lord's Supper today. First Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 18. Now let's give attention to the Word of God. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and rose, and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. That's a relatively small shrub-like bush with small blooms on it. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise indeed. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Mount Horeb, the Mount of God. That's also Mount Sinai. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
and the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful for the safety of your sanctuary, having been able to escape the outside and all of those things in our worldly concerns and to come in and to meet with you and to experience by your grace through word and sacrament covenant renewal. We ask that you would bless us, that you would feed our souls by both word and sacrament. Nourish our souls and nourish our bodies that we may be equipped for every good work to what you will call, which you will call us. And now we ask for the aid of your spirit for the one who preaches. And may the focus of each of us be upon you and you only. And would you reveal yourself to us anew for the sake of Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen. I remember one time being at a post office and walking out and seeing a woman pushing a baby in a stroller. And she had another child, a toddler, maybe of age two or three. And that young lad was walking along, admiring his little sibling and missed the curb and fell. And it was one of those instances I'm sure many of you, particularly those of you who have children and grandchildren have witnessed before, there was sort of a a delayed reaction. He didn't cry immediately, but he sort of sat there uh, surveying the situation and then decided to cry, tipping observers like myself off to the fact that he wasn't really reacting to physical pain, but rather there was angst and consternation and probably a whole range of emotions surrounding the entire episode, and that is the way in which he had elected to express himself because he didn't like what was happening. He was out of sorts emotionally, but not because of what passers-by who didn't see what had happened initially would think. I think that characterizes where Elijah is at at this particular point in his life and in his ministry. We detect when we read this passage that we just read aloud and as we consider what's going on in his life in the previous matters leading up to this juncture, as particularly recorded in the previous chapter, chapter 18, And our tendency is to think that we know why he's reacting the way he is. But I suggest as we unpack the text and as we find the right ballast whereby to approach it and to assess how he is speaking and how he is responding, I think we'll find that it's really not what we initially think. He is grappling with something that is leading him to a cognizant reaction to a particular state of affairs, yes, but I suggest to you that it is wider in scope than one might initially think when you consider what he's been through and as you contemplate the very words that are before us. His angst is protracted and he is unsettled in his soul by some things 
And that is what has caused his discouragement and the ostensible despondency surrounding it. But what is it? And I suggest to you that there is a problem, indeed problems, that actually supersede what most interpreters think is the cause of his spoken words and the actions that he carries out. We need to know what his real problem is so that we can see what I'm calling the primacy of covenant fidelity over character analysis. Rightly dividing the word of truth here, as it were, requires us to overcome, I believe, our tendency to moralize the words and actions of the great prophet and to set our sights higher upon the committed, sovereign, and saving God whom Elijah loves and serves. I think it is tempting for many, and this is seen in the scholarship of the last half century or so, to use modern paradigms of psychology to sort of focus more on the person of Elijah rather than looking past him and observing and adoring and worshiping Elijah's God. So I want us to avoid the temptation to do so. I'm indebted to my good friend, Dr. Ralph Davis, an Old Testament professor who was at Reformed Seminary when I was a student there. He's written an excellent book called The Wisdom and the Folly on First Kings. And then the 24th chapter is dedicated to this chapter, this section that we've just read. And it's a humorous title to that chapter 24. He asks the question, shall the psychotherapists win? And he basically in that chapter provides what amounts to an annotated bibliography of all the ink spilled with Elijah, so to speak, on the couch. And, 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 and these are good scholars and, and uh, good thinkers and, and orthodox committed believers who are looking at it from this perspective, that, that he somehow lost it, that this is su suicidal ideation before us that's driving the expressions of verse 4 and, and so on and so forth. And again... There's something different. There's something beyond mere dysfunction with which you and I could identify. He is stirred and troubled in his heart. He is ill at ease. But we must don the proper contextual lenses that will steer us in the right direction of grasping the overall intent of the larger passage. And I've given there for you in your consideration a rather detailed outline I have broken this down in what I believe to be the best way to digest it. And you'll notice if you have that in front of you that the first two main points are preparatory. They're primer points, if you will. I think we need to consider that first section as the contents wherein we find what best sets the stage for the main teaching of the passage that we'll get around to in the final four points of my outline there. But there are two distinct considerations, two realities that we must get right as we dive in here, and that is concerning both the cause of Elijah's response and the motivation for Elijah's persistence. That is, what is it that is driving him to respond and to react to not just the immediate context, but larger affairs in his life at this particular turn? And also, what is it that drives him? What is it that moves him and serves as the impetus for him to persist 
for him to persevere in his prophetic work. It's always best that we try to look at the text to see what the motives are and to decipher what's going on in one's life as opposed to bringing external bearings upon that and running the risk of missing the main object of the text. And so first of all, let us consider as we seek not to analyze Elijah, but to observe Elijah's God. Notice with me the cause of Elijah's response. As we come to verses 3 and 4 and the first part of verse 5, it would appear that the effect of the report that he is afraid and went to Beersheba, leaving his servant there and ventured on to the wilderness and sitting under a tree and declaring his desire for his life to be over and then uh, falling asleep. That all seems to have on prima facie reading as its cause both Jezebel's declaration to take his life combined with him having failed his covenant fathers, him having not succeeded because he hasn't done any better than those who have gone before him. And again, anyone would understand that he might have fear, he might have doubts, he might be afraid, who wouldn't run under those circumstances. But I want to suggest to you that the real driving force here isn't something that he's worried about regarding a threat to his physical being, so much as a grief and a pain and a suffering that is lodged within his soul and within the depths of his heart. One simple verb that we find early on in verse 3 will help us here. These statements, and in most translations we have this word afraid. You see there where he says, then he was afraid. That word we translate afraid most literally means to see, but it's not a visual observation of something physical. It pertains to a realization of something in the spirit that addresses not only the immediate context, but again, the broader experience of everything that he's been through. We look at this and we think Jezebel's edict that she will track him down, have him tracked down within 24 hours and have done to him what was done to the prophets of Baal. And that's what scares him and he flees. We read that he doesn't measure up to his covenant fathers and we think that he has insecurity or some type of complex when in reality, what he's doing is looking at history, looking back at the struggles of the likes of the Abrahams and the Isaacs and the Jacobs and the Moseses, and he's seeing that nothing is going to be too different for him. And we, rec we recognize that. We get that as fellow human beings. Anybody could naturally look at the confluence of both Jezebel's threat and Elijah's self-proclaimed deficiencies and think, yes, this would be the natural reaction. And he would think in the flesh about those things. But the way are is translated, then he saw that. And that engulfs, that encapsulates not only the immediacy of what has happened here, but what's really in Elijah's heart is his reflection upon the fact that a glorious demonstration 
of the superiority of Yahweh as the great God that he is above all gods, of which we read in chapter 18 on Mount Carmel, that the consuming fire has come down and has consumed the offering and the stones and the wood and the dust and even licked up remaining water on the altar. That has happened. And there have been so few reported conversions. All that did was draw a kind of corporate, national, pithy little summary confession out of the Israelites, of which we read in verse 39 of chapter 18, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. But again, we know Israel has a track record of just sort of stating terse confessions, stating what is right, doing for a time what is right, and then going back in that fierce cycle of sinning or as the book of Judges portrays it and describes it, doing what is right in their own eyes. He's disturbed about this. How can this strong apologetic of the flame of the Lord, something more powerful and demonstrative of the most brilliant teleological or cosmological argument that the brightest professor could use against the most rabid atheist on a 2021 university stage, comes down the pike and everyone sees it, And there's no real change. And this wicked Jezebel, this domineering wife of the milquetoast king Ahab, sort of gets the report over the wire and simply says, so may the gods do to me, and more also if I do not make your life, that is Elijah's, as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. She's not even phased. And what troubles Elijah's, how is this power of God possibly put on display in the world. And there's no reaction other than that. How can such hard-heartedness seem to just be harder in the face of that? How come more change cannot be affected? Why can't he see that as Yahweh's ambassador? That's what's troubling him. Then he was afraid. That is to say, and then he saw that all of this effort just seems to be bouncing like a rubber ball off a brick wall. That's what's troubling him. That's what's causing the response. And that's coupled with the second thing, and this pertains to the escape. He doesn't want her to have the privilege of being the one to take him out. It's also very ironic when you look at verse 2 and you examine the contents of the message that she sends to Elijah. You'll notice that you find there what, what seemed to be the biblical ingredients for godly oaths. See what she's doing? She's calling a curse down upon herself if she doesn't liquidate Elijah within 24 hours. Sounds like the same ingredients of the self-maledictory oath in Genesis 15. That's what godly swearing is. If I'm lying, I'm dying. May this happen to me if I do not do this. It's very ironic that even unbelievers seem to have lodged within their hearts some inherent innate ability to come forth and present themselves even in their wickedness in that particular construct. But he doesn't want to give her the satisfaction of being the executioner. And so therefore, what does he do? He goes to a place where he can be intimate with his God, 
he can pour out his heart and he can experience both the grace of that God as well as the reception of the equipment needed to carry on the work to which God calls him. Geography helps us here a bit. You see, Mount Carmel is approximately 120 miles north of Beersheba. Jezreel, where the king and queen are at this time, is about 100 miles north of Beersheba. Mount Horeb is some 250 miles farther south than Beersheba. So the question arises then, perish the thought, if Jezebel is in Bakersfield and Elijah is safe in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles and leaves his servant there and wanders out into the Mojave Desert and after 40 days and 40 nights passes San Diego and comes to a place somewhere around Ensenada in Baja, California, why on earth? When he would probably just merely have to go maybe to Mettler to escape the sword of the queen. You see, he's not just running from Jezebel here. But there seems to be a fuel in his soul that is driving him by the twin causes of both consternation of soul over there not being really that much changing in the face of an unparalleled demonstration of the fact that God is the great king above all gods, combined with the fact that his desire is to be with his God. We, we see this in verse 4. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. It, it's not that he's saying, I, I want to die because I'm a failure uh, in the eyes of men and I'm so down and I just can't get out of this funk I'm in. But he's saying, you, O Lord, have called me. I'm done with her. I'm done with the wickedness of men. And if my time has come... I want that to be ushered in by your power and your working and no one else's. Yes, he's broken. But he hasn't flipped his lid. He's the same Elijah. He's not off his rocker. He's not so deep in dysfunction and despair that he just simply wants to end it all. You see, that's essential that we understand if we're to rightly know what God is desiring to teach us through his servant here. So with this, we have the cause of Elijah's response. We also have the motivation of Elijah's persistence. He is there asleep under the tree. Notice how an angel or messenger of the Lord appears. There is a cake baked for him on hot stones, and there's a jar of water. He has a nice meal, lays down again, the text tells us, and sleeps, and the angel will come back a second time and will touch him and will say, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. So, obviously, he's provided more food. Now, the very statement by the messenger of God that the journey is too great for you is another corroborating factor with regard to how far he has gone and the reason that he's gone there. If it were a shorter distance, he knows that Elijah could make it in his own strength. But what has happened, God and his providence has led Elijah to this place so that he could show for his own glory how he grants equipment and gifts and meets the needs of those whom he calls to do his work. 
You see, the one who's had enough is now being given enough to carry on the work of the one who called him as a prophet to serve as his ambassador among his people. So those are the right contextual lenses that we must have. The cause of Elijah's response and the motivation of Elijah's persistence. That is to say that he is brokenhearted over a myriad of things. He's upset because the Lord could reveal his power as he does on Mount Carmel and not get any better reaction than a corporate, less than credible profession from the masses. And he could escape to be with his God and no provision and thereby have precisely what he needs to carry on that work that God has for him. He pours out his heart to the Lord in this passage as we see, and it's the same God who provides for him and who gives him everything that is requisite to carry out the important work that only he can accomplish by God's decrees. He's God's messenger. And you know, in a very real way, he foreshadows the greater Elijah. Think of this. God is providing and equipping for this Elijah what he needs to carry on God's work, which is ultimately overseeing the establishment of that political order in verses 15 through 17 needed to entirely eradicate Baal worship. But also, he is working toward the proclamation of that word of the Lord that will engather his own. Yet I, verse 18, will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he's given what he needs to work toward the ends of both justice being maintained and mercy being demonstrated and given to God's people graciously. Even as the greater Elijah was led into his desert and after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting was equipped to, in the vehicle of his humanity, maintain righteousness to be imputed to all of those who had not bowed the knee to other gods or ever would, but who would look to him. So there are all manner of parallels here that we don't really have time to go into But this is rich. This is far better, you see, than analyzing Elijah from any temporal perspective. Yes, he's troubled, but this is not the pressing of a panic button so much as the beginning of the implementation of continued kingdom aids. So we must approach 1 Kings 19, 1 through 8, knowing that Elijah is caused to respond out of grief over man and love for God, and is motivated to keep on living and keep on working toward the establishment of the Lord's will for his enemies and the Lord's will for his friends. And verses 5b through 8 are rich with provision and the granting of strength as Elijah travels to that place to which God is calling him to do his work and to receive the next set of instructions if you will. It's his kind of Philippians 3.14 moment. He's pressing on toward the mark for the upward prize of the call 
of God. There's the call, little c. There's the call, capital C, the effectual calling under which all situational and providential calls to work fall. And that is where he is. And with that in mind, I believe we're set to look at the meat and potatoes of the teaching of the text. Now, in point C on your outline, you'll notice that in verses 1 and 2, we find ourselves in contact with what I'm calling the parameters of imparted truth. Again, the truth could not have been more clear before all eyes who witnessed this. And the queen hears of this, and it has no effect. In fact, it just makes her more resentful of Israel's God. Her wickedness seems to be inflared by these occurrences. And what we have with that is an ostensible limit upon the truth. Now, that sounds strange, but what I mean by that is that truth comes objectively with conditions setting on its operational capacity. Jesus was and is the truth, but he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Therefore, if people witnessing the power of God on Mount Carmel, of which we read in 1 Kings 18, and if people merely seeing Jesus throughout his life, namely in his three-year ministry at the end of his life, if just seeing were believing, then there would have been countless transformations. But what is needed, you see, the truth needs the applier And the one who takes and transforms and embeds that truth into the souls of those who are a witness to it. It's hard to think that you could observe what they observed on Mount Carmel and not be changed. But apparently they can. Truth comes, but the Holy Spirit must transform with that truth. He is the one who must come and take the special revelation of truth and drive it deeply into the hearts of stone and make them hearts of flesh. Oh, how the the, the glorious doctrine of regeneration is so neglected today. But to think of that change characterizing all that you are as the initial step in God's work in your life, applying Christ's great work and all of its benefits to your soul, drawing you in and persuading you and enabling you as the lights go on in your soul to embrace Him, to be changed. How many times have you heard people, and perhaps you've even couched your own testimony in such terms in the past, people will say, at this time in my life, something happened. It's as if they can't put words to it, but they know they're different. And then they begin to list ways in which the Lord taught them and drove them more deeply into His grace. And it's like a flower blossoming. It unfolds before you and you see the beauty of God's work. All of that instigated by the new birth, by Him making us alive in our souls, coming to the door of the tomb of our hearts as surely as He went to that of Lazarus and by name, calling you to come forth. That there are two categories of people. There are those who are dead in transgressions and sins and those who have been made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, how we need to 
wrap ourselves in this glorious reality and allow it to humble us and to move us to deeper service. I think of the early church father, the pre-Nicene bishop of Carthage, Cyprian, who had wondered how a man could conceive of receiving the principles of a new life put before him and not change. But then he realized that any considerable alteration of his soul was impossible to him. He reflected upon his conversion as one who lived with old and radically sinful customs and later said, the Spirit of God descended upon me and I became a new creature. All my difficulties were surprisingly cleared, my doubts resolved, and my former darkness was dispelled. I then saw the earthly principle which I derived from my first birth exposed me to sin and death but that the new principle which I had received from the Spirit of God in the new birth gave me new ideas and inclinations and directed all my views to God. And the Puritan George Walker, who was imprisoned by the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Laud, but later was released from prison and went on to serve as a delegate to the Westminster Assembly in the 1640s in London has said even more pointedly, the Holy Spirit alone sinks the truth through the intelligence into the conscience and the affections. Truth is light, but it is not life. Alone, it is like the sun in winter. It shines to enlighten a dead, cold earth. The Spirit is like the sun in summer. It shines with life and its light vivifying nature and producing blade and flower and fruitage. So the light of divine truth shines in the darkness of the natural mind and the darkness appreciates it not until by the spirit it becomes spirit and life to the soul. And it's this regenerative transformation, I believe, that Elijah longed to see. He's the prophet He's working toward that end for his God. He longs to see that change with the new birth for many. And I pray that we would have that same desire also and would call upon our God to do as only he can to awaken and to enable to believe and to transform and to change, never to be the same again. But second... We have, moving on down the outline under the main teaching of the passage, the grace in repeated questions. The grace in repeated questions, you'll notice in verse 9 and then again in 13b, the Lord poses that great question, what are you doing here, Elijah? And I liken this to another question that was once asked before, that of Adam in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. He, the Lord calls out to Adam and asks where he is as if he didn't know. But we know what he's doing. He's drawing him out. He's attempting to give him the opportunity to come forth and to confess what he has done. And I believe it's that same dynamic at work here. God is calling Elijah to come forth and to unburden that which is pressing in upon his soul and I suggest to you that in this grace, in these repeated questions, two things are occurring. God is both giving Elijah an opportunity to profess his faith in verses 10 and verse 14, and he's also granting an experience whereby Elijah will 
possess assurance. He's prompting him. And he draws from within him an expression of faith that only God can give for the testimony of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Faith is a gift. And he's also the one alone who can confer assurances of the authenticity of that faith and all of the promises that come with it. This is, this is fascinating to me. I, I just I love what, what's happening here. It, it, it's so beautiful, this profession. You'll notice that he's going to profess... In verse 10, the faith that he has. Then in verses 11 through 13a, God is going to work so as to, I will argue, grant him the ingredients of authentic assurance. And then he's going to pose the question again. And then he draws out of Elijah again the same profession. Profession of faith. Faith and assurance so often work that way biblically. It's as if assurance is the meat and the faith are are the two pieces of bread that make the sandwich of faith and assurance. There's a cycle. Faith professed, assurance granted, and then a call to profess faith again. It's interesting. You know that verse that we so often go to in 1 John chapter 5, 1 John 5:13, where John says, "These things I write to you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life." In the Textus Receptus or the English translations based on the Textus Receptus, which are the early translations in English like the New King James or the King James rather, the original King James, that verse has the first line repeated again. It's an inclusio. These things I write to you who believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. And that's what God desires. That's what we have a picture of here. I believe you. I receive the assurance that you give to me, and I state again before a watching world that I I believe you. And what a beautiful profession it is. Have you ever known anyone to use the words annex to the second commandment to confess their faith in Yahweh or the true and living God? Look what he says. I have been very jealous for the Lord. The God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Lord, I am jealous for you. What does God say in the second commandment where he forbids the making of images and the bowing down to them? I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. I want you to hang that over verses 15 through 17 of 1 Kings 19 and verse 18. The setting up of the political structure to carry out what? The visitation of God's wrath on those who hate Him and don't keep His commandments and the visitation of His mercy upon those who love Him and who do keep His commandments. 
What a profound thing. When is the last time you expressed your faith in and love for God by a declaration that you are jealous on behalf of your jealous God? I've always been blown away by just a la carte, this notion of God's jealousy, much less with anything appended to it. I mean, just the fact that he would, would say that. We so often misuse it and really mean envy. Envy is when you desire something that someone else has. Jealousy is when you're looking at a situation and it is looking as though you're going to lose what is yours to someone else. You know, it's that jealousy of God that is your hope and mine ultimately met in the Lord Jesus Christ and all His work on our behalf. God's jealous for you. And this one who's pained about the lack of regeneration in the ancient world around him, he's jealous too. He seems to be troubled like his master is that God ostensibly is losing those he has created as they prostitute themselves to other gods and other affections. What a profession. And this is the opportunity that he's given here. And then in verses 11 through 13a, what happens here? Well, this one who is in the cave, this one who is eventually instructed by God to go out and stand on the mount, what does the Lord do? The Lord does three things. Actually, he does four. The Lord passed by that place and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord but the Lord was not in the wind and after the wind an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake and after the earthquake a fire but the Lord was not in the fire and after the fire the sound of a low whisper and when Elijah heard it he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave you see he's going to give him evidence. God is going to give Elijah evidence that God is for him and not against him. The wind comes, but the Lord is not in the wind. The earthquake comes, but he's not in the earthquake. The fire comes, but he's not in the fire. What does that mean? It means that were he in each of those three elements, Elijah could not have stood it. And isn't it interesting, almost humorous, that he wraps his face in his cloak? He's read Exodus 33. Uh, He knew Moses couldn't look on the face of God. God had to pass in his backside before Moses. And, And Elijah, being wise and godly by God's grace, is one who is preparing himself to get blown away. But because God's not in the elements, but has simply sent the elements, he shows that he is for him. He's not out to destroy him, but rather, he's not ordained the end of his life. But he's showing him his love, that he's with him, that he is present, and that he will give to him all that is needed to complete his work. And what comes? The sound of a low whisper. That's the ka'al de mama daka. That's the phrase there at the end of verse 12. But call, the verb meaning voice, which is translated low whisper there, uh, is the same 
word, and we find it in some form or another all throughout the remainder of the passage. So while there may have been literally uh, nuanced modules or volumes of the Lord's voice here, throughout the whole, it is clear that God is speaking to Elijah in a way that he can stand, that will not consume him, and that he will know that God is with him. And if those aren't the components of assurance, what in the world are? God hears the profession, and He he demonstrates, He opens Himself, He reveals Himself, He discloses Himself before His prophet, but He does so in a way that reminds Him that His agenda for Elijah isn't death, but it's life. And He speaks to him Not destructively, but in a life-giving way in that which we know to be the still, small voice of God. That is the grace that's repeated in these questions. And he asked the question again at the beginning there of verse 13. What are you doing here, Elijah, as if to draw him out, to unburden himself? And verse 14 is identical to verse 10. Hasn't changed. Your testimony should remain the same. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. You ever feel feel that way in your own prayers? You say, Lord, I am so jealous for you, and I am aghast. That when I look around in my nation and my time, I see the forsaking of your covenant. I see those who profess to be yours throwing off your truth in their actions. And I see those dying by the wayside who are about your purposes. Others have gone down for you, and I, even only I, am left. And the question sometimes arises, are they coming after me to take me away? Here is a credible profession. And that glorious cycle of faith, assurance, and faith again. That you profess your faith in God. He vouches safe His grace in His still small voice as He gives favor to you. And He sends you forth to keep on professing that faith. And you are very jealous on His behalf that you trust in Him, that you long for what He longs for, and you do so secure in the knowledge that He will accomplish it. And that leads to the next point. The justice in divine disclosure. Now, J.C. Ryle, the, the Bishop J.C. Ryle once said, Faith is life, and yet it may be weak sickly, unhealthy, painful, or trying. Assurance is more than life. It is health, strength, vigor, activity, and energy. And Elijah experiences both of those in this account. He has faith in a a fallen world, but the gracious way in which the Lord deals with him shows that he's loved, that he's given gifts to carry out that to which God calls him. He's renewed. And in that renewal, then, he is set to experience His role that God has for him in the justice that is displayed in divine disclosure. That's what we have as we come to verses 15 and uh, through 17. This seems to us to be housekeeping. 
Now the Lord says to him, still in a voice that he can take, mind you, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, he tells him to anoint Hazael, king over Syria, Jehu, king over Israel, and Elisha will be anointed by him as his successor, prophetically speaking. And then he gives the order of escape, verse 17, And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. What's happening here is God is informing Elijah of what he wants him to do to carry out God's decreed plan for the eradication of the Baal worship. The prophets have been destroyed on Mount Carmel, and God has shown himself to be the great God of all, above other, other gods. But the idolatry is not gone yet. There's still Baal worship going on in the outlying areas of which we read here. And so this is God's political mechanism to eradicate that as he is pleased. Go to Syria, put in Hazael, and if any of these slippery idolaters manage to elude him and get over into Israel... Jehu will take care of them. And if, perchance, they they happen to get away from King Jehu, then your successor, Elisha, is going to liquidate them. You see, if they get past the kings, the prophets will take care of them. And Elijah is engaging in work that he will not see the completion of. And that ought to bring comfort to us. We are carrying the kingdom baton, as it were, for a time and in a place. We follow God's instructions, but we don't necessarily see the end, uh, both the judgment visited upon those who do not trust Him, as well as the blessings that are visited upon those who do. And so what we have here is a picture of God's plan to justly rid that part of the world of that particular sin and to prepare those who love him and not the other gods to live with him for eternity. Roland Hill once said that justice, though not so pleasant, yet should always be a prior virtue to generosity. I like that. And I'm reminded of the wisdom of that as we come to the table justice in a very real sense must precede a display of mercy and when we come to this table we're not only reminded that jesus has met the demands of divine justice but in so doing has merited in his authority the very purview to destroy his enemies that's why revelation 19:15 describes him as the one who will come and will slew the nations with the sword that is in his mouth. He will pierce them through. He will, as it were, be the executor of the psalmist's desire in Psalm 68:21. He will crush every enemy, shatter their strength, and make the heads roll of them that refuse to repent. That's the justice and divine disclosure. God is disclosing the plan that he has even though it comes through the civil magistracy, that's his ordained mechanism. And Elijah plays a part in that, though he will not see the final results. But then finally, in verse 18, we come to the insistence of divine faithfulness. God is going to 
destroy his enemies, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. He insists on doing what he has said he will do all through the time since the giving of the covenant of grace. Elijah's God is relentlessly and irreversibly committed to showing favor to those who do not bow to false gods, do not kiss them, but rather have kissed his son, the greater Elijah. You remember from our studies a few years ago of the Psalms in Psalm 2, verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry. A kiss is the most intimate expression of one's affection and commitment to another. Jesus calls us again to kiss him at this table and to know that he will set us aside to live in his eternal Israel. Isn't it beautiful that there at the beginning of verse 18, it's a future tense, yet I will leave. God is leaving and he's still in the process of leaving for himself a people to worship him even here on earth. And we know that as the church, do we not? We know that as him in gathering those whom he has set his affections upon from all eternity past from earth's wide bounds and from ocean's farthest coast. Countless numbers of people streaming in to worship Him and to collectively comprise His eternal family. The Puritan Thomas Watson, when you think about Christ's preservation of His own and the building of His church, has said Christ preserves His church as, as a spark in the ocean as a flock of sheep among wolves, that the sea should be higher than the earth and yet not drown it is a wonder, so that the wicked should be so much higher than the church in power and not devour it is because Christ hath this inscription on his vesture and on his thigh, King of Kings. They say that lions, Watson continues, are insomnies. They have little or no sleep. It is true that the Lion of Judah never slumbers nor sleeps, but watches over his Israel to defend it. I, the Lord, do keep it, he says, lest any hurt it. I will keep it day and night. If the enemy destroys the church, it must be at a time when it is neither night nor day. For Christ keeps it night and day. He is said to carry his church as the eagle, her young ones upon her wings. The arrow must first hit the eagle before it can hurt the young ones and shoot through her wings. The enemies must strike through Christ before they can destroy His church. Let the winds and storms be up and the church almost covered with waves. Yet Christ is the ship of His church. And so there is no danger of shipwreck. Now that statement expresses the contents of verses 15 through 18 for both the wicked and the believing in our time. And so we mustn't misunderstand where Elijah is. We must know where he is, lest we fall into the trap of spending too much time psychologizing him. 
but rather we must look at the covenant fidelity of Elijah's God and the certainty that he will take care of his enemies and he will always provide for those whom he leaves out in his body politic. 7,000 in that day, literally, 7,000 in our day figuratively, 7, the number of completion, 7,000, the number of all, every last one of God's own being and gathered, those who don't bow to the Baals of the world or kiss them or their likes, but rather kiss Jesus. And I'll say this as we come to the table. I think I've come to a greater understanding of what the OPC scholar Dr. Alan Curry really meant when he said years ago that when we meet the Lord and take the bread and take the cup, it is as if he cups his hands and places them near the ear of the partaker. And he whispers, I forgive sinners. This table is replete with assurances that because of what Jesus has done, his enemies will be destroyed. But as we meet with him this day, he speaks to us in that still, small voice with which he spoke to Elijah, lo, these many hundreds of years ago. And he, he says, I am not against you. I am for you. Because I have made you to bow to me and to kiss me. May we give thanks to God as we come this day to hear that quiet whisper to again profess our faith and be assured of it and walk away from this table going again to do the work to which he has called us again professing that faith not changing a word giving the exact same testimony this is the God for whom I am very jealous Let's think about that. May we pray. Lord, how amazed we are by the timelessness of your truth. How it is that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as we come to your table, we ask that you would ready us May we confess our sins. May we profess our faith. Again, may we be prepared to receive the vast graces that you have for us here that grant assurance, that build us up, that make us know again that you favor us, you do not oppose us, that you give grace to those who bow to you. Would you help us to that end, for we ask it in Jesus' name as our host and for his sake. Amen.